Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pot Save the People. In this episode, we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as usual. And then we have a portion of my recent book tour, on which I was joined by John Favreau of the first pod on Crooked Media, Pod Save America. There is an ingrained belief in much of the media, especially much of the political media, that balance is the highest virtue and truth should be the highest virtue. My message for this week is to remember that even in the midst of all these things happening that are not good, that challenge our belief in a better world and certainly our faith, remember that we have to like keep asking for the biggest ask possible and putting forward a vision of America and like what it means to be a citizen and a young person and an activist and somebody who cares like bigger than the opposition. So these moments, you know, I think about Kavanaugh being in the court hard is that what the right wants to happen though is for you to get demoralized so you stop fighting because they know that the people are actually on our side. The numbers are on our side. The question becomes, can we organize them? Let's go. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. I I I. That's never gonna end. And this is Deray at D E R A Y on Twitter. Clint, you're gonna regret telling people your Twitter name is Clint Smith I I I. Almost as much as the person who bought that Banksy picture probably regrets that purchase. One point three million dollars for a half shredded picture. <laughs> Banksy is a genius. You know, if you saw that the video of the was it it was Sotheby's, right? The auction. Yeah, Sotheby's. Yeah, and so as soon as they sell the painting for uh, or the spray painting for was it like one point three million dollars? Yeah. And then you hear an alarm Man. go off, and suddenly uh, half of the painting gets completely shredded uh, in the frame because the the shredder was built in the frame. Uh, and you just see people like look over and this look of like, what is going on? <laughs> They're like, was this part of the, is this the plan? I don't understand. And then they quickly take the the paint the painting down off the wall. They're like, whoops. They're like, we're <laughs> having technical well, difficulties. <laughs> right? <laughs> Listen, and they, but what this probably means though, is that Banksy or at least somebody that Banksy hired was there because the shredder is remote controlled. Um, and you know, Banksy is like my, my work is for the people. So y'all not finna pay $1.3 million and not have me have something to say about it. I don't know if y'all saw, but Banksy actually posted a video on Instagram that is now deleted. That was him making the frame years ago. Oh, it's on the website. It's off of Instagram, yeah. uh, making the frame website. years ago. And there's footage of being in the room and all those things. So like, that's dope. And like, what a long, like, what a belief in like a long process. Like I'm going to build this thing, you know, I'm sure at some time it'll go and be a, a hit and then I'll shred it. What's also interesting is that Sotheby's was contemplating whether they're going to refund the buyer because 
now shredded, it might actually be worth more than it was originally. And Banksy, like, just such a great meditation on, like, what does it mean to, like, worship commodities? And what does it mean to, like, worship paintings and do all these things uh, that distract us from our connections to real people? And, uh, and like, how do we value art? And, like, you know, he Banksy has made all these statements about, um, like, people not needing to pay to experience his art, which is why it's already embedded in communities. Um, and I thought that was brilliant. I always think of Banksy in the way that I think of the adults in the Charlie Brown cartoon, where you like never see their face, but they're like, they're always there. You just only see their hands or like- That's a their, good image. Their body. It is. And so like wah, wah, wah. Banksy is the, <laughs> is the Charlie Brown of, of our, the Charlie Brown adult of our world. And, and yeah, no, just, I think you made a really good point to Ray. I think what his art sort of generally makes me think about is the sort of dissonance of how we think of art as a democratizing endeavor, a democratizing force, at least that's how I conceive of art in my life and, and my role as an artist. And then also thinking about the sort of commodification of art um, and the ways that capitalism can hinder uh, people's ability to experience certain types of art and then the ways in which capital then sort of like legitimates or delegitimates certain types of art. And I'm always thinking about, you know, in my world, it's like spoken word uh, versus like quote unquote traditional poetry or the page, the quote unquote page and the stage and the ways that, you know, I was, you know, going to open mics for, for years before I ever had anything published in the New Yorker or in Poetry Magazine or all of these these spaces that I'm, I'm deeply appreciative to be in, but are also have, have a different sort of like artistic currency. And what I appreciate is that he very much tries to, to push back against the sort of the, the false hierarchy of art and, and suggest that, you know, one is not one sort of art is not better or worth more than another piece of art. Um, and that, uh, there's nothing inherently different, um, regardless of the genre or the medium, and that he's committed to, to creating work that, that is for uh, people in, in the truest sense. We also know um, in the many things that happened in this week that the officer that killed Laquan McDonald in Chicago was found guilty. And this is an important time to remind everyone that while Van Dyke, according to our current criminal justice system should absolutely be punished for the crime he committed, that that is accountability. Accountability and justice are two very different things because justice, of course, is if Laquan McDonald were still alive, if quite frankly, you didn't know our names in the way that you do, uh, because um, we wouldn't have to be fighting police violence all over the country. Um, and one moment of accountability does not make up for the vast majority of moments that do not include such. But most certainly, this occurred in part because of the tenacity of local activists uh, and the work that they've continued to do on this case. Yeah, as, as soon as the verdict came down, uh, I just I started thinking of Laquan McDonald's family, and uh, I can't imagine what they've been through and what they've experienced over the past few days, weeks, months, and years. Um, and I'm, I'm reminded how, how this could have been so different, right? But for local journalist Jamie Calvin, who reported the first story about the police murder, and and but for uh, Brandon Smith, who was the one, the journalist who who sued the city of Chicago to get the Laquan McDonald video released, and then obviously, as Brittany said, all the activists uh, who had been on the ground doing this work for for years um, and and pushing for accountability. Like, but but I think of how how easily this could have been so different that 
that the city of Chicago was purposefully attempting to hide and prevent this video from being released and that it took a journalist taking their own initiative to sue the city to have it released, which ultimately served as a catalyst to the charges. And the video, as, as devastating as it is, was so clear um, in, in illuminating what happened. But again, my, my primary thoughts were, were with the family of, of Laquan, and, and it can never bring him back, uh, but I hope it brings them some semblance of, of peace. Yeah, Clint, you know, you mentioned uh, all that it took from, you know, from reporters, from activists, uh, from, you know, these systems actors, you know, folks within the department, uh, folks who uh, investigated the department through the DOJ, you know, all of these different uh, interventions that had to happen to disrupt what otherwise would have been a process to, to completely, you know, cover this up and prevent any sort of accountability from happening. Uh, and I think that speaks to why we see it's so rare for uh, officers to be prosecuted, let alone convicted in these cases, uh, because you see the system sort of rally behind the the officers. You see the police unions come in, come out and defend the officers as they did in this case. Uh, you see the use of you know language and uh, you know you see the way in which white supremacy sort of plays a role in how the cases are framed and covered uh, even the testimony in the in the trial you know this police officer was talking he was referring to Laquan McDonald as a quote male black in a black hoodie and blue jeans multiple times um, and thinking about you know that as an intentional strategy in order to frame the perception among the jurors of who Laquan McDonald was one of the things that has been interesting has been identifying those prosecutors who have actually been successful in prosecuting police for, for killing somebody. Um, and one of the things that I heard from Stephanie Morales, who's a uh, pros local prosecutor in Massachusetts, uh, was the the way in which prosecutors refer to uh, the the officer, whether they, they call the officer, you know, a police officer or they call the officer a suspect. Um, and I remember, you know, her saying how the decision to actually refer to the police officer in the same way in which they would f refer to anybody uh, who they were prosecuting as a suspect actually played a role in shaping how the uh, the jury uh, perceived that police officer and helped her actually secure a conviction, which, which again is incredibly rare. Only 1% of cases uh, where a police officer kills somebody results in a conviction nationwide. Um, and so things like that, you know, I think are, are really important to pay attention to when we do have these cases where police are prosecuted. Um, trying to think of, you know, what were the factors that, that led to that decision that we can learn from um, and, and hopefully think about in other cases as well. I remember when the police department said that they wouldn't release it. And if if you think back to that time, it was like we had heard about the killing of Laquan McDonald. People said it was bad. I remember getting calls from reporters saying, Dre, this will be the worst video that's been released. But I'd heard that before. And this was way before there was a video. And, and then the video comes out much later. And, and you know, we all see it. Uh, Sam and Brittany, I remember we were in the White House, actually. Uh, right around the time the video came out, because I remember talking to President Obama's senior staffers about them watching the video and them showing the video to uh, the president. So, like, I thought that was, like, that is what I remember about this so much. Um, I'm just going to read the statement from the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police. So this is what the President of Police Union, Chris Southwood, the Illinois Fraternal Order of Police, said this following the Van Dyke trial. Again, Van Dyke was convicted of second-degree murder and... Uh, 
all the charges except for like not following department policy, the official rules, which is an indictment of the rules. But here's what the president of the union said. This is a day I never thought I'd see in America, where 12 ordinary citizens were duped into saving the asses of self-serving politicians at the expense of a dedicated public servant. This sham trial and shameful verdict is a message to every law enforcement officer in America that it's not the perpetrator in front of you that you need to worry about. It's a political operative stabbing you in the back. What cop would still want to be proactive fighting crime after this disgusting charade and a law-abiding citizen's ready to pay the price? It's like, that's a threat. What does that even mean? Are law-abiding citizens ready to pay the price? We've been talking about police unions for a long time, and this is why we still talk about them. Statements like this from the head of the Illinois FOP. Of course, we know that the major news this week was the confirmation and subsequent swearing in of Brett Kavanaugh to be a Supreme Court justice. Uh, For a lot of us, myself included, and I'm sure everybody on, on this podcast, that was an incredibly disappointing, though perhaps unsurprising moment in American history. Despite all of the politicking that has been happening in order to actually push this person onto the court. And obviously we've talked about the problems with his nomination and his confirmation multiple times through multiple lenses. I just think it's really important not to give up hope. Like This is not the worst it has ever been. And even though it sucks right now, um, we have no excuse not to keep going. There's so many people before us who kept pushing through insurmountable odds and are the reason why we are here and we are able to fight the fights that we take on today. Um, and so, yeah, I just want to remind everybody to stay encouraged and to remember November is coming and uh, everyone who uh, is currently sitting in Congress should remember that. You know, I keep hearkening on Senator Susan Collins, her vote, because I went to school in Maine. And, like, I know so many Mainers who are just great people. And I always really liked Susan Collins, even though we were, like, she's a a part of a different party. Because there was something about her that just seemed sort of, like, honest and fair. And then the way she has tried to rationalize this Kavanaugh vote is just so wild to me. Like it just, so as you know, she voted, uh, she voted to confirm Kavanaugh. She says she didn't believe Blasey Ford. And then she had the nerve to get on face nation and say, quote, the one silver lining that I hope will come from this is that more women will press charges now when they are assaulted. As if it is like Dr. Ford's fault that she didn't press charges earlier that like, People would have believed her because they don't even believe her now, despite all of the witnesses and like other people who have chipped at Kavanaugh's story. Like, why does she think people would come forward in this moment? She doesn't. Susan Collins doesn't believe that. This is just a talking point so that she can try and appease the people that she upset by voting for Kavanaugh so that she can seem like somebody who is siding with victims. But to see Collins like try to justify her vote in this way is just it's like the grossest part of american politics so for my news uh, i want to talk about a new law that was just signed uh in california by governor jerry brown which goes into effect on january 1st uh, which scales back california's current felony murder rule Uh, this is what allows defendants to be convicted of first-degree murder if a victim dies during the commission of a felony even if the defendant did not intend to kill or didn't even know that the homicide was taking place. So just so people understand what felony murder is, an example that I often give uh, from someone who was convicted of felony murder that I've worked with um, is, uh, so somebody I know who's 15 years old, 
uh, and he and his friend pulled up to a McDonald's. His friend said, I'm going to get out of the car, get something to eat. And he, he was like, cool. The, the guy stayed in the car while his friend got out. Um, he did not know that his friend was actually going in to uh, try to rob the McDonald's. And so the friend went in, uh, tried to rob the cashier. They got into a tussle. The cashier ended up losing their life in that tussle. Um, there was a weapon that was discharged. The friend ran back into the car and was like, go, go, go. And you have to understand that like this 15-year-old kid had no idea what was going on. His friend just ran back and said, like, you got to go. And so he was scared. He didn't know what was going on. And he started driving. Um, a few hours later, he and his friend are both arrested for murder. Um, and he is charged with felony murder as an accomplice. But what's important, is, uh, as I alluded to, is that this, the 15-year-old did not know that the that the murder was going to take place. So this person ended up being sentenced to second degree murder and is now serving a life sentence in prison. Uh, even though they had clearly no intention of, of taking anybody's life, much less robbing, uh, robbing a store and, or a McDonald's. And so the way that felony murder works is, is that it, it doesn't often take into account the intent of the defendant. And so, uh, you have thousands and thousands of people across the country who are serving these types of sentences, who are often serving life sentences um, for things that a lot of times happen when they were when they were children and then when they were kids. Um, so I think that this is a good step. Uh, one thing is that this does not include uh, officers who were killed, um, and they are not subject to the new law, which which we have uh, talked about. Uh, it can be frustrating because officers are, are often uh, made it to be a separate class of individuals um, rather than uh, people who should be subject to the same laws and rules that the rest of us are. But, uh, but generally, this is a good thing, and, uh, and I hope that more states begin to recognize that generally the full context of an event should be taken into account. So one of the things that I did not know uh, and that I learned uh, reading up on this article, Clint, is that the United States is the only country where felony murder is a thing. Uh, and the other thing that I didn't know about this is that is sort of the scale at which this is happening in California alone, let alone the other states. Uh, so in California, it's estimated that between 400 and 800 people uh, are currently serving sentences for felony murder. Uh, and then the other interesting thing about this is how this particularly impacts uh, women and young people. Um, and so particularly for women who are serving life sentences for murder, uh, in California, 72% of women serving life sentences for murder uh, are there for felony murder. Um, so they did not, they were not actually the killers, but 72% of them are still in prison serving life sentence for murder, uh, for me merely being sort of associated with a murder that took place under this felony murder rule. Um, so definitely a, a huge issue. I'm glad that Governor Brown signed this legislation, which doesn't eliminate felony murder, but restricts how, you know, the, the level of association involvement in a murder that you have to have. It has to be intentional now. And then the, the last thing I'll just say regarding California is that this was one of many criminal justice and police reform bills that have been signed uh, as the legislature came to a close in California over the past, uh, I think this happened a, couple, a, a week or two ago, uh, when the legislature uh, closed uh, for the year. And so other bills that were signed uh, include SB 1421, which uh, opens up to the public for the first time records of police misconduct, which is really good. Uh, I know we've talked about that in the past, as well as laws that require uh, the release of body camera footage uh, within 45 days um, and uh, a range of other uh, provisions, uh, for example, making it harder to prosecute uh, people under the age of 15 as adults, um, 
and so so a number of good bills that did get signed and hopefully more progress will be made next session around changing the deadly force standard. In our study group, we were talking about the power of imagination, and this just makes me wonder, what would it take for us to get to the point where not only do we see progress like this that you've brought to us, Clint, but um, the actual eradication of felony murder in the U.S. at all? How do we actually see that as a plausible and likely and probable goal on the road to prison abolition. Um, I'm very sure activists have worked on that. The question is, are those the activists that get access to policymakers or are those the people who are thought of as so radical that they don't even get the meeting, that they don't even get to sit at the negotiation table? This is what happens when we get so used to the status quo. We don't allow ourselves to imagine what life can look like in a completely different situation, in a completely different setup. Felony murder doesn't have to exist. Obviously, every other country in the world shows us that. So why does it exist here? Don't go anywhere. More Pod Save the People is coming. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert, Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash people.
Pod Save America is brought to you by Helix. If you're looking for better sleep, you need to upgrade your mattress with Helix. The Helix lineup offers 20 unique mattresses, including the award-winning Lux Collection, the newly released and high-end Helix Elite Collection, hmm. a mattress designed for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids, which Charlie has. Charlie has a Helix mattress now, just for kids, in his uh, race car bed. Very nice. excited, very happy about it. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and uh, it ships straight to your door free of charge. They even offer a 100-night trial and a 10- to 15-year warranty to try out your new Helix mattress. If you're a side sleeper, you can choose a model with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief. There are also models with more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions. Plus, check out enhanced cooling features to keep you from overheating while you sleep. It's no wonder Helix has over 12,000 five-star reviews. And you, you've loved your Helix mattress. I love it. I got a Don Lux. There you go. And there it's you go. great. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash crooked. That's helixsleep.com slash crooked. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So my news is a new study that was released a couple of months ago from uh, professors Eagley and Schwartz at uh, UCLA. And this article is on Lexapol. So Lexapol, if you don't know, is a company that makes policies for a number of different types of city agencies. So they make police department policies on training and use of force. Uh, They make policies for fire departments uh, and uh, other agencies as well. Uh, What's interesting about Lexapol is the amount of influence they have over that policymaking process, particularly when it comes to the police. Uh, And what this study does is really dive into that level of influence. Uh, One of the things that's interesting here about Lexapol is that they write the police policy manuals for uh, over 3,000 police departments across the country. Just to remind you, there are 18,000 police departments across the country, uh, and Lexapol writes the policies for at least 3,000 of them. We don't know exactly how many, but at least 3,000, including 95% of all of the police departments in California. What this uh, study in particular speaks to is the privatization of police policymaking. Um, and how those decisions about what types of policies, particularly regarding use of force, uh, are sort of make it into a police policy manual are not really made by city policymakers. Uh, they're not really made by with input from community members in many cases, but they are made by a private corporation called Lexapol. And to guide them in making those decisions, uh, Lexapol's sort of marketing pitch to these cities Uh, And I'm going to read this directly from their website. It is to reduce the risk of costly litigation with continuously updated policies that meet federal and state statutes and case law. Uh, And so not only is Lexapol writing the policies for all of these police departments, but they're doing it with an eye to intentionally shielding those cities from liability uh, so that they pay out fewer settlements to people who police officers uh, brutalize and or kill. Um, so that is actually what the sort of goal is that they pitch this to. And then the, the last thing that's interesting about this is that when we think about how these policies are updated over time, um, you know, we have looked at use of force policies of police departments across the country. And one of the things that's interesting with Lexapol is that their policies include fewer uh, best practices with regard to limiting how and when police use force. In most cases, they actually don't include a de-escalation policy, for example. 
they don't completely ban officers from shooting at moving vehicles and a range of other best practices that actually have been shown to reduce uh, deadly force by police. Uh, Lexapol doesn't include those things. And the last piece is that if community members are pushing to include these types of policies, oftentimes they get erased as the policies are automatically updated by Lexapol. This is frustrating. You know, I remember all of the work that it took to get clear on what police union contracts said, right? And all of the, and, and what police, um, what internal police policy said, right? And all of the FOIA requests and the work to get these documents that should be fully accessible by the public because we should know what the policies are for exactly how armed people quote unquote, serve and protect us. Um, but it was like jumping through hoops. And it's only if you have time, resources and access uh, that you can actually get clear on what those rules and regulations are, um, and therefore have the power to change them. So now you're telling me that here's another layer, and that layer is not at all in any way accountable to the people. I don't know if, Sam, do you know if Lexapol is, is it a publicly traded company? Is it fully private? Uh, I believe it's a private company. So, so these folks are literally only accountable to themselves. They're not accountable to you, to me, to our children, to anyone. Um, and that is that should worry everybody. One thing I didn't realize until recently was that in the United States, private police officers currently outnumber their publicly funded counterparts by a ratio of three to one, which is just something that I wasn't cognizant of at all and, uh, and, and brings up this point of... Um, accountability and, and concern, like who are these people accountable to? So for example, uh, you know, Facebook is in a partnership or has been in a partnership with uh, the Menlo Park, California Police Department, and the social media giant agreed to pay $194,000 salary of a police officer whose job was going to be cut. Uh, one of the largest private security forces in the nation today is the University of Chicago Police, which has full jurisdiction over 65,000 residents, uh, and only 15,000 of those are students. More than 100 public housing projects in Boston are patrolled by private security, uh, including one company that has been authorized to arrest suspects under certain circumstances. And, and you know, so this is from this New York Times article that ran uh, about private policing that was increasing in New Orleans a few years ago. But I think it's things that are presented to us under the guise of public-private partnerships to increase the efficacy and uh, and scale of, of public safety um, – are, are things that need to be like deeply interrogated and, and approached skeptically and critically uh, because of this question of accountability. The thing about Lexapol that I'll say is I was talking to a police chief and I was asking her, uh, is your jurisdiction a Lexapol jurisdiction? And she was like, no, not this one, but my last department was. And I was like, well, why did you use Lexapol? And she was like, because they were just quicker at turning around policies than the city law department. So it was just like an efficiency thing. And you know, Brittany always talks about this idea of uh, one of the manifestations of dominant culture is the notion of efficiency over people. And this process is one where, like, yeah, they crank out the rule real quick, like, after a law changes, but, like, who does the rule benefit? And is it one that is actually about trust, safety, or the community uh, having any sense of belief in a mechanism to respond to conflict in communities. So like Sam already said, like the policies they put forth aren't in line with the best practices that we understand to keep communities safe. What is also interesting is not like some just like simple in, in, interpretation of the law. They are, they are decidedly putting markers in the street. And one of the ways that Lexapol markets itself is 
like you know literally they say like on the heels of the death of Trayvon Martin and the recent unrest like you want to make sure that you're covered and and they they market this sort of like insurance liability angle and and they are some of the reason why even the best uh efforts at change like you know Britney was on the task force Obama's task force and that led to a push where one of the big uh, police groups came out for more restrictive use of force policies and stuff like that and Lexapol has just fought them so like what does it mean that a private agency has this much sway and like sam said we really don't even know how many police departments this study talks about three thousand, but there could be significantly more and the study only focused on uh, california explicitly so there's a lot more to to think about with like what Lexapol, what their reach has been So obviously it was a big news week, but I still don't think that's an excuse for why most of the American media did not at all report on the fact that there was a 5.9 magnitude earthquake in the country of Haiti. Haiti, of course, suffered a massive 2010 earthquake that killed a quarter of a million people. This is the largest earthquake to hit the country since then. The earthquake was so tremendous that they felt tremors in the neighboring country of the Dominican. Republic. At least 12 people have died and at least 180 people have been injured. But given the way that it was pretty difficult to count for a while just how many people died and were injured as a result of the hurricane in Puerto Rico, we don't know if that number could rise. But here's why I'm so frustrated that the American media did not take the time to really pay attention to what was happening in Haiti. It's because the U.S. owes Haiti and we owe it big. The U.S. is primarily responsible for the state of disrepair that Haiti is currently in, and that has been occurring for over two centuries. The U.S. and the West more broadly has been primarily responsible for stealing money, resources, and people from the country of Haiti and leaving it in the state that it is. Um, So here's a very, very brief history of the U.S.'s role of imperialism in the country of Haiti and why we owe them big time. Uh, In 1804, Haiti is famous for achieving the first successful slave revolt in the entire world. Um, They were able to free themselves from France during that time. But the United States refused to recognize them as a country. Of course, you and I know that in 1804, the U.S. was still busy enslaving Africans on its own. So we couldn't recognize a country in which slaves had successfully revolted. But somehow we could recognize them as a country enough to begin sanctions of them uh, after 1804. So they suffered from an economic embargo that wreaked havoc on their economy, on their ability to trade, on their ability to make money. All of this was happening while France decided that Haiti somehow owed them reparations for the slaves it had freed. Yeah, you heard that right. The slaves were owned by the French who had colonized Haiti. When those slaves freed themselves, France said, you owe us for our, quote, property. Fast forward, what did Haiti have to do? They actually had to borrow money from France and the U.S. to pay back those reparations. They didn't finish paying off those reparations until 1947, but then they owed France and the U.S. even more money for those loans. So while we were stealing their money by embargoing a country that we didn't even recognize, we were making them pay us back with interest because we loaned them the money to pay back 
the country that they freed themselves from. In 1915, President Woodrow Wilson, who is, of course, responsible for resegregating the federal workforce, sends troops down to Haiti, killing thousands of Haitians um, and ruling over them for another 19 years, during which they we controlled customs, uh, collected taxes, and run government institutions. We can't even estimate how many millions or billions of dollars the U.S. siphoned off and stole during that time. From 1957 to 1986, the U.S. backed two dictators, Papa Doc and Baby Doc Duvalier. They killed 10,000 Haitians during their reign, and 40% of the $1.3 billion in external debt that Haiti owes was run up by those two dictators. If we look at this century alone, the U.S. stopped millions of dollars in loans to Haiti that were being used for public projects like roads and education. Those, of course, are the same roads that relief teams have difficulty getting down now. And of course they do because we stopped loaning them the money to help fix them. But how dare the American press not even report this story when we owe Haiti back what we stole from them and then some? How dare the person who currently sits in the White House call this an asshole country? when we are responsible in great part for exactly what they're dealing with right now that we actually have to pay attention to and be supportive of our Haitian brothers and sisters. And I think it's a reminder that, you know, the countries that are being destabilized or have been destabilized by the, the U.S. were destabilized because they stood for equity and justice, because they decided to implement a different model, uh, whether it's economic model or a model of social organizing that was not ba- rooted in slavery or not rooted in, uh, you know, exploitation of workers. Um, and that's why they were targeted. That's why, you know, not only the U.S., but many Western nations uh, sort of conspired against, uh, you know, places like Haiti, places like Cuba, um, and other places uh, across the, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, and now what we see are many nations that are moving to the right, right, that are embracing a sort of authoritarian uh, and, you know, white supremacist model of, uh, or political uh, ideology. So we see, for example, in Brazil with the recent election uh, there that, you know, is, is not completely done, but the sort of front runner uh, is a Trump style, you know, politician. Um, and, you know, when that happens, we don't see, you know, the U.S. suddenly, you know, punishing a place like, you know, Brazil or, uh, so many of the other countries where we see far-right regimes taking over. Uh, and so, you know, it is this sort of double standard where you see countries that are embracing equity and justice historically have been sort of shut out um, by Western nations, but countries that have embraced the opposite, maybe with the exception of South Africa, have, you know, continued to do business with the United States, have continued to do business um, with the West. And and I think that that is, uh, that is part of the incentive structure globally that, that creates, you know, the lived reality that we see in so many different places um, where countries have not been able to live up to their potential because of this type of imperialism. And I'll just say, you know, we have centered Trump so much in the way that the North American press covers anything that we are just missing out on a whole host of incredibly important stories. I mean, it's why we do the news this way every week. But until Brittany brought this up, I had no clue. There were, I just, I literally had not heard anything about this, like at all in any capacity. Didn't see it on Twitter. Didn't see it on the news. Didn't see it in the newspaper. And that is sort of wild to me. Like that still remains wild. So nothing to add on the rest of the context besides like part of our, if we say that we're actually pushing back against 
this guy in the White House. Part of the pushback is also not letting him consume our mental energy uh, and the way we think about the world. Because right now it's like he, he is just so much of what it is. My news is about um, abortion clinics. So, you know, I didn't know this started because I didn't know that in Missouri, there's only one abortion clinic that remains open because of new state laws. And then I did more research and realized that there are six other states where there's only one abortion clinic. So West Virginia, Kentucky, North and South Dakota, Mississippi and Wyoming. And it's for a host of reasons. So uh, there are uh, places that have banned certain procedures. There are places that have made it a constitutional amendment. There are places that have required sort of untenable relationships with hospitals by um, by certain miles. So like there are a host of ways that they do it. But I just hadn't, I never thought about like what it means that there's only literally one clinic in the entire state of Missouri or like Mississippi. And what we know is that abortions are, like people are still going to have abortions. The question is like, will they... I do it in a way that is safe for everybody involved. And, and, and like, you know, that is a real challenge. And I think about the work ahead with how we solidify a woman's right to choose as law, as practice, as policy around the country. And just like, we really have reached a point where like one clinic in an entire state is just so wild. So I just wanted to bring that up. You know, I am from St. Louis, as you all know, and that uh, clinic is one that I used to pass every day going to an internship that I had at our black newspaper, the St. Louis American. Shout out to the St. Louis American. Um, I had that internship in college, and when I would drive uh, down Forest Park Parkway and make a right turn onto Boyle, um, where that clinic is, I would always see protesters. Um, And it's amazing to me how much energy people can put into protesting something that uh, not only provides affordable and accessible health care for lots of people, especially people living in low-income circumstances, uh, women, um, young people, uh, the LGBT community. Uh, We have so much energy to protest those folks and we don't have nearly as much energy to figure out how we make sure that people actually have access to the health care that they need. Uh, It cannot be that the only people who could potentially have access are people who live in urban centers. Rural poverty is real. Rural access issues are real. In places where there is a lack of public transportation, where there is a lack of broadband access, where there is a lack of information uh, being given to people as it should be, uh, we have to make sure and have to be ever more vigilant that people can access the things that they need to live healthy lives. That's what being pro-life should be all about, making sure that people can have healthy lives inside the womb and outside of the womb. Um, And yet we're fighting that progress every single day by closing more and more uh, places like Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers. The important thing to remember, and I think we've said this before, is that one in four women by the time they're of middle age will have had an abortion. Abortion is a medical procedure, and it's one that women should be able to access safely. If uh, Roe versus Wade is overturned, which of course is part of the problem with Brett Kavanaugh because we anticipate that it absolutely will be, abortions won't end. They will simply go back to being unsafe. Uh, and they will be unsafe for the most vulnerable and already oppressed women. In New York City in the year before Roe versus Wade became the law of the land, 90% of the women who died from back alley abortions were black and Latina. 90%. So we know who's going to suffer the most. It's the women who are already 
already suffering the most at the hands of this society. Uh, And so we have to continue to fight this thing back, not just at the federal level, but at the state level as well. Yeah, Brittany, to that point, you know, the the ways in which, uh, you know, somebody like a Kavanaugh and the conservative majority now on the court would would try to uh, sort of overturn Roe and limit access, uh, limit the, you know, the legality of abortion is through those types of rules and procedures and upholding the constitutionality of them. So, for example, we've seen many states uh, pass laws that uh, prohibit people from obtaining an abortion after 15 weeks uh, or even in some states what they call a, a heartbeat uh, bill or heartbeat ban bill where they uh, ban abortion at six weeks, which for many women is before they um, n- know that they are pregnant. So they wouldn't be able to obtain abortion even uh, in, like on an, under any circumstance because you wouldn't even find out uh, in many cases until after uh, it is no longer allowed. Um, after that period where it's no longer allowed. Um, so that's sort of one sort of front. And so what, what I would imagine with this court is that they would, you know, the current standard uh, under Supreme Court precedent is that it's 24 weeks, um, that a state cannot uh, ban abortion earlier than 24 weeks. Um, and you could, you know, see a situation where the court sort of unravels that and reduces the number of weeks. Uh, or, you know, alternatively upholds these types of restrictions on what types of facilities can provide abortions. Um, and so, you know, limiting it to only one facility in the entire state or even no facilities in the entire state uh, that qualify for that. So pay attention to what's happening at the state level um, and to the game that this new court might play uh, to try to, to unravel those protections. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album, and we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. And now a part of the tour in L.A. when I was in conversation with the L.A. Times' Travel Anderson and Pod Save America's John Favreau. And, you know, the one of the last stops on the tour, I'll be in Minneapolis on October 11th. You can go to DeRay.com to get tickets. Hope to see you there. And our guest, the organizer, educator, host of the award-winning podcast Pod Save the People, and the author of the new book, On the Other Side of Freedom, DeRay McKesson. Hello, everyone. Hi, everybody. 
I can't exactly tell how many people are out there because I can't see anything. It is very bright. But um, thank you all so much for joining us at Ideas Exchange um, with our wonderful guests today. Um, we're going to kiki for a few minutes, and then we're going to bring out John um, and kiki for a few more minutes. Um, so talk to us about your new book that they have beautifully propped up here. Yeah, you know, it, it started, um, I was listening to a sermon, and the sermon was called, Don't Tell Your Story Too Soon. And I'll never forget it because I thought that was like the best title I've ever heard. I'm like, Don't Tell Your Story Too Soon is a great title. And I listened to it, and what he says is that sometimes you can tell your story so soon, all you see is the pain, not the purpose. And I was like, you know, if I've written a, if I. That was good, yes. It was his sermon, I just listened to it and took the word. Is that like, if I had written a book three years ago, it wouldn't have been about the pain of protest, that I knew that really well. I understood what was different about St. Louis, what was different about Baltimore, Charleston. Like, I could tell that story well. I wasn't at a point yet where I could talk about, like, what the lessons were. And, like, what did I learn and what were the themes? And, like, I got to a point where I understood that well, and I was like, I want to share it. So it's things that are, like, things you expect about the protest, about the police. And then I write about being gay for the first time in the book. I write about my mother who left. Uh, the essay is called... I can remember her now without sadness. And like my mother left when I was three and came back when I was 30. And I wanted to write about that too because I'm mindful of like that we walk into rooms and carry more into rooms than we name every time. And like for me, her absence has always made me think about what it means to be worthy. And that I carry that into every room that I walk into. And that I know that like part of my growth as an adult is to make sure that that doesn't hurt other people, that I can still love in the midst of my own issues of what it means to be worthy. And that shows up in the work, that shows up in the world. So that is why like I wrote the book, is that I wanted to share the lessons, the things that I learned, and hopefully people could learn from that too. So I can tell already you're going to make me kick off my shoes and take a lap around the room. <laughs> He's dropping nuggets and gems. Hopefully you're picking them up already. Uh, <laughs> talk to us a little bit about your, your activist awakening. At what point did you know that like this was that you needed to do more than perhaps just kind of voting or, or tweeting? At what point did you know you, you need to do something more? Was it Ferguson? Was it something long before that? Yeah, I spent my career working on issues related to kids. Like, that was, like, my thing. It was, like, I taught sixth grade math in Eastern Europe, Brooklyn. I opened up an after-school center in Baltimore. Like, I trained teachers. I worked in the school system. And I was in Minneapolis uh, when Mike Brown got killed. And I remember this notion of, like, we got to live our commitments. That was my thing then. It was, like, we got to, like, our commitments have to be living commitments. And when I saw that they killed a teenager, I was, like, the least I can do is just go stand in the street and just try and figure out what happened myself. Like, that's what I did. And the second night I was in St. Louis was the first night that I was tear gassed. And I was just like, nobody should have to experience this. This is like a wild thing. And like, that really was like my wake up call in that moment. And I'm mindful that we aren't born woke, but something wakes us up, right? That like, for me, what woke me up was that moment. What about, what, what lessons did you learn from being in the classroom, from teaching that you, you take with you now in the organizing work Ooh, you're doing? Oh, everything. Teaching is like the hardest, you know, one of the interesting things about teaching is that like, I've never failed more in my entire life that like teaching is like one big exercise and like what it means to fail and do it everything and still have to come back. That like, um, that any of you who've taught, you know that like you, you come in and you teach this amazing lesson and like two kids don't learn and you're like, didn't do it today. And like, it's just like a hard thing. And, 
And when I think about the book, it was like this notion of how do we talk about the work in more complicated ways, in more complex ways that like do justice. And the other thing that I learned about the classroom that I love is like, you know, what the best teachers do is walk into classrooms and know that the gift already existed before we got there. And that part of our work is to help kids get the gift every day long after I'm gone. What the worst teachers do is walk into classrooms and make people think that the gift only exists in their presence. And like what the best organizers do, what the best activists do is go into communities or go into their own communities and say like, you had the gift before I got here, right? That part of what I'm trying to do is help you activate it. That like, what it means to empower people, I can't give you power. What I can do though is help you find the power you have, that that is a part of the magic. <laughs> I almost took a lap on that one, just to let you know. In the book, you, you, in the, there's a chapter called The Choreography of Whiteness, and you kind of make the distinction between whiteness and, and white people. Talk to us a little bit about that, about the, the need to make that distinction and what's the, the utility in doing so. Well, I think about that chapter, you know, I tweet often watch whiteness work because I'm interested in the way that whiteness is sort of always moving. And, um, you know, I remember there was this, I was at a party once, and this is, I'm going to tell you the party just for context. This is not a humble brag. It is it was, a humble brag. It is not a humble brag, but I was at Miss Tina, Beyonce's mom. She has a, 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 like a party that's a wearable art party. So everybody's like wearing art. And I go to the party, and I'm wearing this like plastic jacket thing, and it has facts about justice on it. So one fact, all of them are true. One fact is that we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined. That is true. Uh, another of the fact is that one in five black people in Florida can't vote, also true. The third is that white high school dropouts have more wealth than all black college graduates. And so I'm wearing this on, my, on this jacket and this guy comes up to me and he's like, hey, is that true? And I'm like, all oh, these are true. He's like, I don't know about this one. And I'm like, I don't know if you get not to know. Like, I don't know if this is like, you don't get to like, you don't get to like contest this. It's a straight white man who is like coming up to me saying this. And he says, he pauses and he goes, well, Dere, you know, the only reason that uh, white people have more wealth is that they're more white people. And I was like, mm, I don't know, but we're at this party. So I got to be like a little chill. And I say to him, I'm like, well, the only reason they're more white people is that you killed half the people and enslaved the other half, right? Like that is... And he is looking at me like, what just happened, right? And I'm like, <laughs> but I say that because like one of, you know, people talk about this notion of truth and reconciliation. And what we know to be real is that the truth has to come before the reconciliation. And there are a lot of people who like want to do the reconciliation part without dealing with the true part. And when I think about well, one of the ways that whiteness works is that whiteness sort of like wants to skip past all the worst parts of how we got here and sort of like just suddenly magically make it work. And when you think about wealth, for instance, it's like we gave white people wealth, right? That like the government gave white people housing loans with 1% interest. We gave white people free education. Like the, the highway administration paved over communities to make what we now call the suburbs. Like we did that for white people. It's only when we talk about poor people and people of color that suddenly everybody's imagination goes out the window. They're like, we don't know what to do. And you're like, what you mean? We just did it, right? <laughs> so when I think about this distinction, it's like white supremacy, the idea that white people are the norm, are the standard, and are the measure of everything. Whiteness, the culture that that just creates, and white people as people who benefit from those things, even if they don't actively perpetuate them. And we name it so that we can help people disrupt it. And like in that chapter, I talk about sort of this cycle of self-congratulation that's happening amongst whiteness right now, that like, People are, they're like, I get white privilege. They're like, at the basic element, it's an acknowledgement that you benefit from things that you didn't personally work for. And like, that's good that white people get that. You don't get like 10 medals for that, right? They're like, you are like late to the party. People of color been there, right? Like we, we knew you had it. 
what is actually exemplary is when people like understand that that privilege is a result of something at the system level. Like that is what's important. And like, how do we help people do that? There's another distinction you make between allies and accomplices. And you say that, that um, you, I think you said uh, an accomplice loves you up close and uh, an ally loves you from afar. Um, something yeah, so, like that. So an ally is like, hope you get free, call me. They're like, good job, like, see you there. Accomplices are like, hope you get free, let me, let me know what I can do. Like, let me stand by you, let me be with you in this work. And there are a lot of people who like, sort of have the rhetoric down packed. They're like, yes, like, we can do it. And you're like, well, what are you going to do? And they're like, I don't know. And you're like, well, that's not helpful, right? And that part of when I think about what we did that was sort of important and, and interesting in Ferguson in 2014 and all, in most of the cities is like, people walked into the risk, right? But accomplices say, like, I'm with you in it. Like, let me figure out what I can do. You mentioned at the, at the start that you wrote in the book for the first time about uh, uh, being gay. Um, I want to delve into that deeper, um, and particularly about like, how your sexuality impact and impacts the work that you're doing and the, the spaces and your ability or lack thereof to move through the, these activist spaces and the work that you're doing. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the reasons that I've not written about being gay before is not that I haven't been gay. I've been gay in, for a long time in all the rooms. Um, it really is because I, I've lived a public life amongst my peers for a long time. So I was like student body president in middle school and high school and college and those sort of things. And love was the only thing that I felt like I never had to share with people. Like everything else, I like people knew that both my parents were addicted to drugs. People knew my sister. People knew like people knew all that stuff. But like love was like the thing that was just mine. It's actually one of the, the most vulnerable parts of the book in my sort of lived reality is that I don't have many things now that are like sort of just mine anymore, which is sort of this weird thing about the book. Um, when I think about in the movement space, it is weird. There's like this half of it is some people are like homophobic, but like me. And you're like, that doesn't work, right? Like, I don't want to be like a safe space for your hate. That that's like a <laughs> weird thing. Um, and then there are people who like, you know, I can never be radical. I can never have transformational politics that like, there's something about the way their homophobia shows up that is like, I just can't be strong, which is sort of this interesting thing. And then on the, the flip side, I, I do think that we're talking about identity in the protest space in ways that we've never done before. That like, we're talking about the trans community in public in ways that like are new and different and important, right? We're talking about what justice means with regard to the LGBTQ space in ways that like we've never done before. And like that to me is important. And that, that brings me to, you know, the conversation. I feel like the, a, lot, a lot of criticism has been thrown your way because you've become visible from, from kind of the Ferguson movement and the protests. And, and there's so many different kind of critics and criticisms uh, about you and, and your visibility. How do you think that visibility is like impacting your ability to do the work? Yeah, you know, I, I try to think about like, how do I use the, the platforms to amplify the work of other people to make sure that I'm telling the truth as I see it and to connect as many people as possible. The hard part is some of it is like, we just don't talk about it publicly. So I think about one of the cooler things that we've done is that we were helping the activists in Florida. So there are 2 million ex-felons in Florida that can't vote. It's on the ballot in November. Hopefully uh, it'll pass. Like we have a lot of faith in it, but we were supporting, yeah, it's a dope thing. Like, yes. We were supporting the activists in Florida, and there's this really interesting, and by interesting I mean awful, law around petitions. They needed 700,000 signatures, and the way the law works is that you have to have a certain percentage of 
signatures or petitions from a certain percentage of precincts. So like you can't just get them from the big cities. So we helped them build this platform that like mailed petitions around. So that was really cool. But what we also did is like I called Lady Gaga, called Katy Perry. We got Jay, we got Jay-Z to like open up the concert halls so that the, they could gather signatures at the concerts, right? So they got like thousands of signatures in one fell swoop in ways that they just couldn't do at a grocery store. And like those are the things. So when I think about like why I'm in the room, it's like to ask people to do that stuff. I'm not like planning barbecues, you know what I mean? It's like, I'm like, Gaga, can you open the thing? And she's like, Dre, can I go to the table? I'm like, Gaga, it's your concert. You can go to whatever table you want to. Like, thank you. Uh, so that is like so much of how I think about it. And, I, and I'm mindful that the platform exists for more than just me, you know, that like, it is about how do we make sure that we tell the truth in as public as possible uh, ways. And like, you know, we, chapter three is about data. Is that like, I think about, you know, if you get killed in this country and a newspaper doesn't write about your death, if you get killed by a police officer in this country and the newspaper doesn't write about you, you just don't exist in the data set. So any number you've ever heard about police violence comes from the aggregate of newspaper reports, which is pretty wild. So the database that you might know best is like the Washington Post database. The challenge with the Post database is that it only includes on-duty killings that include a gun. So if you think about Eric Garner, it was on duty, not a gun. He's not in the database. You think about Botham Jean, so the young man who was recently the officer went into his house, shot him, that was off duty and included a gun, not in the database. And like we feel like there has to be a place where all these things are actually held. So like we use our platform to like create that, to amplify it, like those sort of things. And then we spent a lot of time, we created the first public database of police union contracts and like we found a lot of interesting things. So like in California, there's a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. That doesn't make sense. In Cleveland, they destroy police officer disciplinary records every two years. That doesn't make sense. In Maryland, my hometown, home state, uh, there's a law that says that you can file an anonymous complaint against an officer for everything except brutality. And you're like, well, that's sort of wild. So like we wanted to like figure out how do we like lift those things up? Because these are the reasons why like nobody's ever held accountable. It's like it's a structural issue and like we're fascinated with those things. Before we bring out John, um, I wanted to, to ask about um, one of the missing histories that you note in the book. Um, I'm going to forget his name. The guy who first did the uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter. Marcus Anthony Hunter. Marcus Anthony Hunter. Can you tell us who he is and, and why we should know his name? Read the book and you'll hear the whole story. But um, like trying to lift up, you know, I remember those early days when we decided, the first hashtag we ever used was hashtag Ferguson. In the book I talk about, uh, there was a, a professor who was the first person to tweet hashtag Black Lives Matter years ago and like why he did it and like why that history is important. And part of, I think, our responsibility in these moments is when we think about like the platforms that allow us to fight erasure, that we fight it in all fronts, that we tell these complicated stories because the world is actually complicated. And I think about like making sure that when I talk about the protests is that like I'm one of many people that I'm not the first, I'm not the most important. There's so many people who did incredible work and I wanted to lift that story up in the book. And with that, we're going to uh, be joined by our special guest. Is he, is he over there? I can't see him. John, 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 John. John there we John, go. John, John, John. Hi, John. I'm gonna move this here. I heard there was someone in the back who couldn't see your handsome face. <laughs> Sharonda, that was for you. So. I love it, I love it. John and I met um, when I was running for mayor of Baltimore. I like randomly found John, like some email for John. Like, Just cold emailed me. I did, I was like, hi, my name's Dre, running for mayor. Can we talk one day? And he responded. 
Yeah, we had a great chat. And now we're like crooked, crooked together. There we go. Yeah, I got a pod, couple of podcasts here. Couple of podcasts. What made you? What made you respond? What made you talk to him? Um, I had obviously heard of Duray and Duray's work, and so when I got an email, he said, you know, I'm I'm running for mayor. I'm thinking about running for mayor. Or, actually, you are already running. Yeah. And um, you know, I thought maybe we'd chat and you could give me some advice. And I was like, wow, maybe I could be useful. <laughs> so I thought yeah. I was like, and, and you know, I was always inspired by Duray's activism, and so. Uh, you know, I, I called and we chatted. And that was before Crooked Media started. I was yeah. still a, a consultant, just, you know, deadening job. And, um, <laughs> but as I was talking to uh, DeRay about that, and, and he was talking to me about running for office, you know, it was around the time that I started thinking, like, I got to get back into politics somehow. And I don't know if we've ever talked about this publicly, but so John calls me. He's like, Dre, I think you should have a podcast. And I'm like, I'm really busy. I don't know anything about podcasts. Like, what's a podcast? And he, so he like lets that go. And then he calls back and he's like, hey, Dre. And then I don't know if you remember this. Literally, he's like, Dre, your first episode is going to be like March 21st. That's like what the call was. And I was like, I guess I'm doing a podcast. Like, that was like how it happened. <laughs> and then like we've been running ever since. And when you said like, you know, I don't know how to do a podcast. I was like, I really don't know how to do a podcast either. I mean, when, we, when Bill Simmons gave us a chance to do one, he was like, just talk about politics for an hour. And so you asked the same question. I was like, just talk about activism. Talk about the work you do. I'm like, yeah. the rest will just come naturally. It'll be fine. And it did. There we go. And it did. It's been cool, too. I remember when we were putting it together, it was like, the first half of the pod is uh, the news you don't know. And for those of you who listen to the pod, like, that's a, a great part of it. And, um, you know, I, I often joke now that, like, if I wasn't focused on mass incarceration and the police, I would be a full-time lead activist. Like, I'm obsessed with lead. I'm, like, obsessed. Do you know, this is a test for you, do you know why kids eat paint chips, like no, lead paint chips? I don't. Is lead is naturally sweet. Do you know this? I'm obsessed know with this. Obsessed. So like if I didn't think that, now you know, is that if I didn't think this was a conspiracy before, I'm like convinced it's a conspiracy now that like <laughs> there was a period of time in the country where the, where the housing administration mandated that the projects use lead-based paint. I'm like, like, this is like wild. So I've said this at a couple of the stops and like afterwards, two different times, people have come up to me and they're like, when we were kids, like one woman was like, my brother used to lick the walls. And she was like, now I realize he wasn't crazy. I'm like, yes, the walls taste like candy. <laughs> and somebody else was like, my, my sibling used to like eat the corners, like used to chew on the corners of the wall. Uh, and you're like, yes, it tasted like candy. Blows my mind. So when I think about the podcast, it's like we wanted to like uncover those sort of things that people just like didn't know, but matter. Yeah. And you have done that well. The name of the book is, is On the Other Side of Freedom. Um, what, what do you all think that looks like? What do you think the other side of freedom, the future, uh, looks like? <laughs> I mean, one thing that Donald Trump has been incredibly good at is recruiting Democratic candidates to run. Um, and the best part about it is it's not just the usual suspects. I think one of the problems with the Democratic Party over the last decade or so has been when the party committees in Washington are sort of in charge of recruitment. You end up getting the same types of people because one of their criteria for making sure that someone can run for office is, can that person raise money? And the people, the candidates who can raise money are candidates who have connections. They tend to be whiter, more male, lawyers. <laughs> um, and so they're people from the same backgrounds, from the same profession. And I think what has happened since Trump was elected is there's been this groundswell of activism and also this groundswell of people who say, you know what, 
I think I can do this. And because we're in this, you know, because of the internet, because of online fundraising, and some of what we did back in 2008 in the Obama campaign, now you have these candidates who don't have as many connections, who don't know a ton of rich people, who can raise just as much money, if not more, than, uh, than a Republican candidate, and they're running for office. And I think what Donald Trump has made people realize and is making people realize right now is that democracy is an everyday struggle. And it has been like that before he was elected, and it'll be like that long after Trump leaves the White House. Um, and so, you know, my vision, at least, of what <laughs> the other side of freedom looks like is a democracy where every citizen is engaged constantly in the collective project of building a better country. It is this idea of like who, who can who can beat him and and like we say it's like this you know whoever runs in 2020 uh, they won't be running against Donald Trump they'll be running for a vision of America that's bigger than him mm -hmm. right and like if you if you run against him you'll only be as big as him and like we need somebody who can offer a vision bigger than that and like I'm interested in like that who is, that's gonna be I, I could not agree with that more I have this fear that the Democratic, the first Democratic debate we see where all these candidates are on stage and there's you know, 20 of them across the stage. Um, it will be a contest about who can deliver the best anti-Trump zinger, right? Because right, they'll right. have all their consultants and they'll be like, you know, you gotta be the one that's toughest against Trump um, because that's how you get more attention. And I think that's the wrong political advice to give a candidate. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that the person who's gonna stand out is the person who is bigger than Trump yeah. in every way and I who agree. has that vision that you were talking about. I also do think that like, we have to figure out like how do we not pander, you know, people talk about like how do you reach across the aisle? Mm. And like I'm not convinced that we need to reach across the aisle. Are you, are you reaching across the aisle? No. I'm not reaching I mean, across the aisle. Well, <laughs> look, I don't think, there is a much larger pool of non-voters than there are Republican voters who are going to vote Democrat. Right. Now, and these non-voters, they might have some conservative values, they might have voted Republican in the past, but they are at least, our job should be figure out how do we persuade and inspire the most people possible behind our agenda and our vision for the country. And wherever that leads us is fine. Yeah. But if you start with the main goal as reaching across the aisle, um, you're just gonna be working in a smaller pool of people than you would be if your initial statement is, okay, here's what I believe, and I'm gonna try to persuade people who may not have ever been involved in politics before, who may not have thought that voting makes a difference before, I'm gonna try to persuade them that their vote will actually make a difference in this country. But if we sort of focus on getting more people into the political system, by its nature right there, that will you know, make for less divisive politics because you'll have more people with more backgrounds and more ideologies. I mean, right now, we are the, the Democratic Party is the party that looks like America. The Republican Party, the way it's constituted right now, does not look like America. You know, people talk about preaching to the choir as a bad thing, and it's like, sign me up for the choir. I want to build the <laughs> biggest choir that we possibly can build. That any of you who've ever been in a choir, you know that being in the choir is hard work, especially if you've been near or in a church choir. That's like a whole new job, you know what I mean? Like, and when I think about like the choir, it's like part of the choir is going to rehearsal, learning new music, like learning how to use your voice in ways that you didn't know it could do before, like learning how to turn that hum into a beautiful melody. And like, like part of our work is like recruiting people to be in the choir with us. It's about saying like, it's like let's build the biggest choir that we can build. Yeah. Boom, 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 boom. All right. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. 
Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.